But you can turn, if you would, church family, to Ecclesiastes 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 15. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 15. And we will go through verse 29 in our passage today, as we heard Emily read it a moment ago. There are some statements that we hear, that we say, that are so self-evidently true, so obviously true, that we call them truisms. You heard this word? Truisms. Um, Some have even said that a truism is a statement that is so obviously true that it's almost not worth saying. And one of the most famous biblical truisms is found in Galatians 6, verse 7, which says, many of you have memorized this, you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. Have you ever heard that? Even if you're here and you didn't grow up in church, you, um, you I'm sure, have heard a sentiment that is similar to that. Even when I looked up a definition of truism, one of the first examples that it gave was, you get what you pay for, which is another way to say the same thing. And, and I think, as I was thinking about this, this idea of what, what a truism is, at a, there's a, and why this one in particular, that we reap what we sow, is so um, known to us, as I think in a deeper sense, it resonates with us as human beings. It, it, it speaks to a deep desire in all of us that longs for life to be fair. It longs for life to be just. We love justice in our society, don't we? I mean, don't even go and look at when you just search for crime drama. Uh, it just, I, I dare you to go do that. You'll be absolutely overwhelmed by the number of shows and movies that fit within that category of crime drama. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you, I'm sure, have enjoyed your fair share of crime dramas on TV. And it just had me thinking, why we love, why do we love that genre of movie? Why is there such a demand for it? And I think it's because as human beings that are made in God's image, we have a desire for life to be just because our God is just. We long for life to be fair. We crave these things as human beings made in God's image. We, we, we know that even in our society that can be really morally confused sometimes, no doubt, we are living in a time of moral confusion in our society, but there are times of incredible, encouraging clarity when our society knows what is right and knows what is wrong. For example, we still have a society, by God's grace, that knows that premeditated murder is wrong and that should be punished. Even in the last few weeks, we've seen big stories about high-profile cases that were being punished by judges and our society realizing deep within 
that it was a just ruling to punish somebody who has done something evil. And because, the reason I'm saying all this, because we know this truism and it deeply resonates within all of us, that we have this sense that life should be fair and just, we're trained, right? We have this reflex, we're conditioned to think that there should always be a direct correlation between what we put into a situation and what we get out of a situation. See what I'm saying? We, we, we are conditioned to think that if I put a dollar bill into the vending machine of life, I, I should get a soda, right? I, I should get a soda, that's how it works. But we know that life doesn't always work that way, do we? That, that even truisms, as vastly as they are believed and as true as we know them to be in many ways, they have exceptions. And that is what we are going to see in our passage today. We've already, of course, visited the topic of injustice in Ecclesiastes in chapter 3, verse 16. And it seems as though the preacher's returning in our passage today to visit this topic again and to look at it from a different, a different angle and help us have wisdom in order to deal with life's unjust, unjust moments. Let me give us a main idea for our passage today that we hope to unpack in our time together. So here's the main idea from our passage. The fear of the Lord leads to godly wisdom that recognizes human depravity which simultaneously humbles us and strengthens us during life's unjust moments. The fear of the Lord leads to godly wisdom that recognizes human depravity, simultaneously humbles us and strengthens us during life's unjust moments. I want to give you just quickly, you can see just the, the, the macro level from the outline of this. There's really just two major headings of it. I think we have it on the slide somewhere. But basically we're seeing in one verse, verse 15. I heard it read a moment ago. We'll read it again in here in just a second. We're going to see in verse 15 an injustice observed. We'll look at that quickly. And then the rest of our passage, verses 16 through 29, we're going to be given wisdom for how to manage. So that's where we'll spend the majority of our time together in this sermon. Wisdom for how to manage an injustice that is observed by the preacher. So you see, see that? Pretty simple breakdown. So let's look quickly at verse 15 together to make sure we know what is making him say the wisdom that he's giving us in our passage today. Verse 15, the preacher says, In my vain life I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. I think there's some of us who hear that passage and go, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen that. But there's others of us in this room. My suspicion and my thought is, is that when you experience verse 15 personally in your life, it has a profoundly disillusioning effect upon us. 
Listen to what he says. In my vain life, I've seen everything. What he's saying is, I've seen both of the things I'm about to describe. I've seen both this righteous man who's perishing in his righteousness. I've seen a wicked man who is prolonging his life in his evil doing. If you've lived long enough in here, if you've lived a life long enough, you have seen this happen even to you. You've seen this reality happen maybe within your own family. Seemingly good people that have horrible things happen to them. And yet another person who seems like they're doing everything wrong in life, living a life of wickedness, a life that doesn't honor the Lord, and it seems like they're just, everything's going great. Everything just seems to be working out great for them. And when you experience that up close, because of what I said in the introduction, we are so ingrained with the truism that you reap what you sow, and when life doesn't seem to do that, it can be incredibly jarring for us. It can make us throw up our hands and go, this is just meaningless. In my vain life, I've seen both of these things, the preacher says, and I want us to feel that. Even if you haven't maybe experienced this up close, one day you probably will because of the world that we're living in. And what the preacher is going to do in verses 16 through 29 is give us wisdom for how to deal with life's moments like this, how to deal with it, how to manage, how to cope with injustices like this. And so that is what we're going to turn our attention to now in verses 16 through 29 and how this will break down and for wisdom and how to manage this is we're going to see the preacher say, heed the warning that will be verses 16 through 17. These will come up in time. Heed the warning, part one. Then in verses 18 through 22, we're going to hear him say, hear the wisdom. And then verses 23 through 29, he's going to say again, heed the warning, part two. So that's the, that's the big headings for you to grab hold of today. As we're looking at how should we manage and cope in life's unjust moments like the one he mentions in verse 15. So first, let's turn our attention to verses 16 and 17. Look there with me in your Bibles. First thing he says, be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? First glance, these verses are like, whoa, they're jarring to us. Uh, what, is, what is he saying? At first glance, it, it looks like he's um, condoning or suggesting a kind of moral laxity in our life. In other words, like, just be a little bit righteous. And you know what? Just be a little bit wicked. Is that what he's saying? I don't think that's what he's saying. I think that's to miss his whole point. I think that's to miss the whole point. The point that the preacher's giving is that he's showing us two warnings. He's giving us two warnings, and he's showing us two extremes Two temptations that we will encounter 
when bad things are happening to seemingly good people. Or when good things are seeming to happen to bad people. He's giving us two unwise extremes for us to avoid in verses 16 and 17. What should we do when we look out at life and it seems like it is not meeting our expectations and it seems that it's not fair? Here's his answer. First, in verse 16, we should not obsess and fixate about living just a better life. A better life morally. Somehow hoping, hoping that if I just sprinkled a little bit more righteousness on my life, I could improve myself. Looking at a situation and thinking, you know, I could, I could miss that injustice. They didn't live quite as good as I know I can live. If I could just have more uprightness, that would bring me a longer life. That would bring me a more successful life. I could just put in a little bit more morality, and I, I'm guaranteed to get out a longer, healthier, more successful life. And hopefully you're, you're seeing what he's, con, what he's condemning and warning against is a, an excessive attempt at self-righteousness. You see this? Don't be over-righteous. And then he additionally adds, which is related to this, I think, that we should not seek to be excessively wise in the sense of trying to understand and know that which has not been given to us to know. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but what he's revealed to us, that is for us to receive. It's for our children, the generations after us. There are things that are not for you and me to know. So do not be, try to make yourself excessively wise. Some things in life, church family, will make no sense to us. We will not be able to unlock the meaning of in our finite minds. And last week, I hope you're thinking about last week's sermon from Pastor Blair that we learned in these moments, the Lord so often is asking us to trust in his perfect and complete sovereignty over all the universe. Remember the, the texts that are talking about better is this than this, that kind of confronted our expectations last week. And when we submit ourselves to the Lord's sovereignty that he is running the universe, we are reminded that we're finite, that we have limits. We must remember every day to come before the Lord and entrust ourselves to him who is faithful and all-knowing and all-wise. And he's saying if we fail to take hold of this, listen to him, we will bring great destruction on ourselves. We're told in verse 16, why should you destroy yourself? The word destroy, translated in the ESV, it can mean to inwardly tremble. It can, it, it can, it can be characterized by a kind of psychological turmoil, psychological trembling or distress that we can have. Seeking, so here's what he's saying. If you seek to safeguard your life 
from injustices by just pulling yourself up more by your own bootstraps and thinking, I can fix this. You are seeking to destroy your life. And he's saying it's not going to work. Don't go that path. It's a recipe for inner destruction. And secondly, in verse 17, he warns, on the other hand, to not actively pursue a licentious life of just taking on extra wickedness. Surely we've known this temptation as well. When something so bad happens against us or something in our family that obliterates our expectations of what we thought God was going to do or what we think is fair. Isn't it a temptation to think, what does it matter anyway? You know what? I don't even think there's any accountability. I don't think it matters at all how we live our lives. I'm just going to take an extra heap of the world, an extra heap of wickedness, because there's no accountability anyway. And he says that that is colossal foolishness, church family. That even though, evidently, it's sometimes true that we could watch the wicked prospering for a short amount of time, evidently it's not always true, and you'd be a fool to think so. And I just want to ask us a question as we're thinking about our own hearts. I hope you're thinking about your own self in this moment and thinking, and my question is, which of those extremes are you more tempted with? I, I think in different seasons we can be like a seesaw and tempted with both. When life is unfair, seemingly unfair to you, which do you run to first? I can fix it. I can fix this. I'm going to just live differently. I'm going to live better. I'm going to live more righteous than I, than I think they lived. And I think if I just did this, this, and this differently than this, then I think I'll avoid all of that. Is that your temptation? Or is your temptation to go, what does it matter anyway? To just be tempted to despair, give up, live however you want? Both of these extremes, hear the preacher, will destroy you. Both, hear this, both of these extremes are rooted in a temptation to control the outcome of your life. Both of those sinful temptations are rooted in a temptation to control the outcome of your life. So church family, heed the warning. Heed the warning. Why? Well, look at what he will say next. This is our second heading here. Hear the wisdom. Verses 18 through 22. Let's listen to what he says, where this leads. Listen to verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So the one who fears God, he's saying... The one who fears God and takes hold of these warnings, they will come out from, or the NASB says with. I think that's the better understanding. NASB is the most literal. The one who fears God will come away with both of these warnings. Will, he's saying, heed both of these warnings. The one who fears God will. So listen, fearing the Lord, the preacher is saying, is the antidote to both of these sinful extremes. Fearing the Lord is the antidote to these sinful extremes. 
Because this is such an important topic, the fear of the Lord, I want to give us a quote. We've talked about Pastor Justin, Pastor Blair, we've had whole sermons in this series on what does it mean to fear God? Because this is such an important topic, I just want to give us one quote from a guy named Michael Reeves that he's been so helpful to me on this concept of fearing the Lord. As we're, he brings it up and then moves right on past it. I think he's describing it. But I want to remind us, when we're saying the fear of the Lord, what are we talking about? Michael Reeves has this great quote. I think it'll be on the screens. He says, the right fear of God is not the gloomy flip side to joy in God. Rather, it's a way of speaking about the sheer intensity of the saint's happiness in God. It helps us to see the sort of joy that is most fitting for believers. Our delight in God is not intended to be lukewarm. Our joy in God is, at its purest, a trembling and wonder-filled, yes, fearful joy. For the object of our joy is so fearfully wonderful. We're made to rejoice and tremble before God. You're made for that. You're in here. You were made to rejoice and tremble before God, to love and enjoy him with an intensity that is fitting for him. What do we mean by the fear of the Lord? I think that's getting, getting at it. The antidote to these sinful extremes is to love God as God, to rejoice and tremble before him and not our circumstances. And as we'll see in a moment, other people, to fear other people, this is the antidote that we need. And it's no wonder in verse 19, as we keep reading, that the, the fear of the Lord, now that it's brought up, that wisdom now flows to us when we have this fear. Wisdom can now flow to us unhindered. When we have this fear, we should be thinking of Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Don't try, listen to this. This is what he's saying in verse 19, I think. Don't try and make yourself strong by self-righteousness or rampant wickedness. You and me love to look strong in ourselves, don't we? It's a temptation for all of us. I love to look strong. I do. I do not like to talk about my weaknesses. I'm strong. I, I, I've got it all together. No, when we humble ourselves, church family, and come underneath fearing God for all that he is, all that he is, it humbles us. We're going to hear about in just a moment. But that will make you stronger, it says, than 10 rulers who are in a city. The fear of the Lord leads to a godly wisdom that just pushes out our desires to want to control our lives through all these extremes. We can let go of control and, and bring it to the Lord. So he's saying, make yourself strong by fearing the Lord and taking hold of his wisdom. I think he knows the potential anxieties that we can feel 
by walking away from a desire to control our own lives. It's, it can be a scary thing to just go, okay, I'm not in control of anything. I'm not in control of anything. And it's a daily, this is a daily thing for us. Jesus, you are running my life. Jesus, you are in control of my life. I am not in control. As much as I want to seek to control, Lord, forgive me for seeking control of my own life today. You control my life. Find strength there, church family. He knows that, and so he's describing warnings, and he's showing us um, this desire that we have to, I think, control our own lives, and now he's talking about a godly wisdom that is giving strength. So biblical wisdom, as we're looking at verse 19, it means in this context... Biblical wisdom in this context, it means so many things, but in this context, he means having a contentment in our limitations. And it includes the humble recognition that we don't understand everything. We can't understand everything. It's having the humble recognition that we don't see the meaning, like we said a moment ago, in everything that happens in our lives. We will be led to say, With what the preacher says in verse 15, I've seen everything in this meaningless life. It will not have meaning to us sometimes, but it always does to our Lord. We should be thinking that. So the wisdom that gives us strength in verse 19 is a wisdom that takes hold. We've talked about the warnings of verse 16 and 17. So taking hold, heed the warnings, church family. But then it also, this wisdom leads us to take hold of the wisdom that he's going to give us now in verses 20 through 22. So here's more wisdom he's going to have for us. Let's read verses 20 through 22. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So here, he's unpacking more of the content of this godly wisdom. And here, he's going to come to a thunderous, a foundational, a humbling truth for you and me today. Here's a summary of what he says in these verses, 20 through 22. He is giving us wisdom on the nature of man. And he says basically this. When you are tempted to look out and observe that the, that, that the righteous, the seemingly righteous seem to be perishing, dying early, and the seemingly wicked seem to be running rampant and living an awesome life, when you're tempted to believe that, he says actually righteousness is far, far, far away from you and me. Way more than you and me realize. And the flip side, wickedness is much closer to all of us than we would ever care to admit. Righteousness is much, much further away from all of us than we would want to ever understand or admit. And wickedness, that's what verse 2, I think, is getting at. 
your heart knows. You do just a cursory exploration of your heart. You know that so often you've done the same things to other people. So what do these verses mean here? What is he saying here? He's saying that when we're tempted to be disillusioned with the righteous perishing and the wicked prospering, we must remember there are no righteous sufferers among fallen humanity. I'm going to say that again. When we're tempted to be disillusioned by the unfairness of our world, we need to remember there are no righteous sufferers among fallen humanity. Verse 20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. The preacher also says similarly, look at where he goes in verse 20, almost describing the opposite of the fear of the Lord and giving us a little picture of what it looks like to be crippled by the fear of man in verses 21 through 22. He says we should not be so deeply bothered by slanderous, hurtful things that people might say against us. He says, I'm paraphrasing, but if you're bothered by this, watch out. Because you may hear someone closer to you cursing you. He uses the word servant here. In other words, someone from your own household even. Someone in your own sphere of people that you thought you could trust could say something bad about you. And watch out. If that's really important to you, your life is going to crumble. preacher says in verse 22 that in light of verse 20, we should understand actually that deep down, right, that we've done the very same things to others. So he's saying, don't be self-righteous when receiving criticism. Aren't we all? That's the temptation. When we receive criticism, we think it's self, we're self-righteous, right? I don't deserve that. How dare them say that about me? If they just knew... I, I'm innocent. Are, are we? Are we innocent? We're not. We're not innocent. Don't be self-righteous when receiving criticism. We know that deep down within all of us, wickedness dwells. We so many times have been sinful against other people, haven't we? This is a question. This is a question. I want to just ask. I feel led to ask this question. Do you, do you struggle with feeling deeply insecure at the terrifying thought that you could be found out that you're not as good as you want other people to believe that you are? Or, or somehow being so crippled by the thought that other people are always better off than you and you're always clawing to just be seen a little bit better. And if, if that's where you're so vulnerable to criticism. If somebody criticizes a deeply insecure person, it's like their life, just like, it's like cards. It just disintegrates. Do you find yourself deeply insecure? And what he's saying here, listen, he's giving us help. He's saying that all of us have the same biggest problem in the universe. All of us have the same biggest problem, our sin before a holy God. There's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. 
All of us have the same biggest problem. I can't resist to use this Spurgeon quote. I think it'll be on your screens because it's so, I just could, it just kept ringing in my ears as I was reading these verses. This famous Charles Spurgeon quote, he says, Brother, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you are. If he charges you falsely on some point, yet be satisfied, for if he knew you better, he might change the accusation. And you would be no better by the correction. Do you, do, we laugh at that, but do we think like that? That we're more sinful than we even know we are right now. So that criticisms, when they come out us, they shouldn't just, oh, discombobulate us. Because we have God's word speaking to us. What our biggest problem is, is our sin before a holy God. So this is the wisdom we need to take hold of that he's ringing out for us to stabilize us amidst this world that seems to be unfair at times and he's getting to the bottom of what this problem is that's out there that's within us. He's talking about the doctrine of total depravity here, and he's going to bring it up in verse 29 even clearer. It should deeply humble us. And listen to this. The doctrine of total depravity should calibrate our expectations differently while we live in this world and around one another. That's what he's saying. The doctrine of total depravity should calibrate our expectations differently as we live in this world and as we live around one another. That doesn't mean we, should, we can have no expectations for ourselves and for others. It's not what he's saying. But he is saying that our expectations should be calibrated around this doctrine. Do you see that? It helps us have, be wise about the totality of human existence. So in these last verses now, heed the warning part two. We're looking at verse 23 through 29. 23 through 29, heed the warning. Where does he go from here? Let's read these verses quickly together. All this I've tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which is far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. The word scheme can also mean conclusion, to find the conclusion of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I've not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. How are we to understand these verses? Well, I think as a warning, I think Solomon is giving us a personal testimony of many way, in many ways of doing the opposite from the wisdom that he has shared with us. He, in a part of his life and for a portion of his life, this was what he did. 
He searched for excessive wisdom. Are you hearing what he said in verse 16? Don't try to make yourself excessively wise. And as a part of his personal testimony of his life, he went searching for excessive wisdom. He went searching for the scheme of things, to even the investigation of wickedness and folly. You should be remembering chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. Very similar verses. He went to explore all of this. He went out to look for it. So you should be thinking about 1, 17 and 18 here. And it seems as though that during his investigation of wickedness and folly, he found out that women would become a trap for him. His search led him into the area of relationships with women that he found more bitter than death. I want you to know I read verses 26 through 28 about a thousand times this week, trying to understand what is he, what is he saying? What are we to make of verses 26 through 28? I believe the best way for, under, for us to understand what he's saying in verses 26 through 28, we see clear enough because we've seen verses 23 through 25 elsewhere, it seems like in the book, but what is he saying in verses 26 through 28? I believe 1 Kings 11 is the backdrop of these verses. 1 Kings 11 is the account of King Solomon having his heart turned away from the Lord by many foreign women. It's a, it's a very sad narrative. And I just can't help, oh, as I read this over and over and over again, it became more difficult for me to read these verses and to not think of Solomon's ultimate downfall here, becoming entrapped with many foreign wives. Also, from verse 29, we know that he has Genesis 1 through 3 on his mind. He's had it, that account, Genesis 1 through 3, in his mind elsewhere in the book. But verse 29, we know Genesis 1 through 3 is on his mind. And so we can also see aspects when we're reading these verses of what transpired at Genesis 3 in the fall. Chapter 1, verse 9 of Ecclesiastes, we know this verse, there is nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. And the temptation, guys, hear this, the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden to desire the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Think about that. That was the temptation. I am desirous to know the knowledge of good and evil, the desire to be made more wise by eating, it was the same temptation here for King Solomon. And the death and the curses that accompanied Adam and Eve's pursuit also accompanied the preacher in his pursuit. I want to ask you, because I do think he's showing us in a sense that there's nothing new under the sun, the same temptation that came in the garden was the same temptation that ultimately took hold of him. Where, where are you? Where are you most tempted? Where are you most tempted to be discontent with what the Lord has given to you? Where are you most tempted to be discontent with what the Lord has said to you in his word? This is what's underneath the temptation of Genesis 3. And the enemy came 
and spoke to Eve and said, did God really say, oh, you could have so much more. God is actually holding back. You could have so much more. And then she saw that the tree was desirous to make one wise. She went for it. So where are you tempted in your life to be discontent with what the Lord has either given to you or what he said to you? Are there aspects, are there verses in scripture that you're just like, you know, I'm tempted to disbelieve that. I'm tempted to think that that's not enough. I'm not, that path will lead to death. Where are, where are we tempted to fall into that same temptation? And the one he says in verse 26, the one who pleases God escapes the temptation. But I do think that 1 Kings 11 should be ringing in our ears as we think about verses 26 and 27, 26 through 27, 26 through 28, excuse me. And we need to understand that Solomon's relationships with women were highly dysfunctional and disobedient. And evidently, hear this, Solomon would not ultimately be one that pleased God and escaped her. He would be the sinner who would be taken. Solomon's downfall in the Old Testament was an enormously significant event. I was reading in my quiet time this weekend in Nehemiah 13, hundreds of years. This was written hundreds of years after this event. And we know the reforms that happened in Nehemiah, right? The reforms and the people repent. And evidently at the end of the book, the people of God begin to slip back into their sinful ways. And one of the temptations of God's people in Nehemiah was to take back the foreign wives that they had taken. And I want to read for this Nehemiah 13, 23 through 26. Again, written hundreds of years later. In those days, he says, I saw the Jews who had married the women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Then Nehemiah made them take an oath, it says. Listen to what he says. You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your women. I'm sorry, for your sons for yourselves. Then he says this, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. Listen to this. He was beloved by his God. God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. This, this event, this downfall, reverberated hundreds of years after this king lived. So we're seeing in these verses the kind of downward spiraling quest of Solomon to seek wisdom in the scheme or the conclusion of all things. And we can even begin to understand what he says in verse 28. That verse puzzled me as I read it many times. The frustration of verse 28 where he says basically, maybe one man among a thousand I found. I think the context means one good man. Maybe one good man among a thousand I found, but I didn't find a good or upright woman. Well, it doesn't seem like he ever did, does it? He isn't speaking dogmatically or universally in verse 28, but he's speaking personally and experientially. 
from a personal testimony and quest. As he's writing to his own son and those who he hopes to come after him in taking the throne, it just made me think, as watching Solomon's um, example of sharing a personal testimony like this, we have so many older saints in our church. I love that in our church, we have so many people who've lived more life than me. I want you to hear this text saying, and just by implication here, we need your personal stories and testimonies of where you've done well, but also where you have failed even. The heart of Solomon to say, this is what I did, and this is where it led me. And for us to heed the warning that I think he's given in these verses to all of us, older generations, I want you to hear me say, and all the other pastors would say, we need your discipleship of the younger generations in this church. You have seen more life than we have. You can help our feet from falling into the traps that you might have fallen into. We need you. We need you. Take us, take us under your arm. Disciple us. So his conclusion comes in verse 29 here. We see his conclusion. He says, see, this alone I found, that God made man upright, speaking about the garden, but they, that they is plural, it's masculine, he's talking about all of mankind. They have sought out many schemes for themselves, many schemes or devices. Matthew Henry said that man... Listen to this. Man, instead of resting in what God found for him, was seeking to better himself. Like the prodigal that left his father's house to seek his fortune. That's what this passage is saying that humanity has done. Rather than resting in what God had told us and what he had given to us, we instead sought to make ourselves better, and it did not go well. This verse especially, I want us to hear this for just a second, it sums up the doctrine of total depravity. What do we mean when we say the doctrine of total depravity? This verse especially sums up this doctrine that God originally man made man upright, but since Adam's first sin, ever since Adam's first sin, All of humanity, the preacher is saying, all of humanity now has sought out evil plans, has sought out inventions. This word can be this this word can mean inventions, devices, schemes. All of humanity now seek out those things. The doctrine of total depravity says that the nature of As a human being, that our nature now, since the fall, has been influenced by the power of evil. It means that the fall was such a serious event that it affects the whole person. Our fallenness affects our minds and our thinking. We do still have the capacity to think. We still have the image of God Though it's tarnished, we still have the image of God present with us, but the Bible says our minds have become darkened in Ephesians 4, verse 18. 
So many other verses teach this. Genesis 6, 5, we read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's what verse 29 is saying in our text. In the New Testament, in Romans 11, I'm sorry, Romans 3, verse 11 and 12, Paul says, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands. But then he adds, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So it's one thing to have what verse 20 is saying. And we all, I think, are more comfortable with that. Everyone has sinned. But what verse 29 is saying about human depravity is worse it's, it, it's worse. It's saying that all of humankind, all of, of humanity seeks their own devices, seeks their own inventions, seeks their own schemes apart from God. So the fear of the Lord, to sum all this up, the fear of the Lord leads to godly wisdom, church family, that recognizes human depravity which simultaneously humbles us, but it strengthens us in life's unjust moments. So in light of the world's greatest injustices, like us looking at the seemingly righteous dying earlier, the wicked living long, we should instead fear the Lord in order to gain godly wisdom that humbles us in the reality that no man, no woman is truly righteous among fallen humanity. And at the same time, Fearing the Lord will bring, oh, hear this. Fearing the Lord will bring us such a deep source of strength. Do you want to be strong? Don't try and seek it within yourself. It will come from outside of you. Seeking the Lord will bring us a source of strength that is enormous, supernatural, and assuring, stabilizing. And I want us to know today how we can know that. And even though our passage of verse 29 leaves us with this note of seemingly hopelessness, the preacher is talking about Genesis 3, and we need to see from Genesis 3 what is all there. Genesis 3.15 says that even though all of these curses and all of this sin affects our world today, that is not God's final word on it. There would come one. There would come one. The the what the the one born of the woman who would take sin, death, and the curse, and he would make it not have the final word. And even though that here in our text, there isn't an upright man or woman to be found, and none in here, there would come one who would be truly and completely righteous, right? His name would be Jesus. He would truly trust in, rest in, fully obey his father perfectly. He would successfully resist the temptations of Satan where you and I do not. He would resist it perfectly. And he would go to a cross and he would die a substitutionary death for our sins the truly and only righteous sufferer, Jesus Christ. Him dying in the place of unjust, unrighteous people like you and me so that every person in every place, every sinner who would turn 
and trust in this Jesus, in this God-man, they can be, hear this, made righteous. Not because this righteousness could be found within them, but he will give you this righteousness. He'll give it to you as a gift, not earned through your excessive attempts to make ourselves upright and to fix our own selves. It's impossible. For all of us who are living now as followers of Jesus Christ, he would become our righteousness, 1 Corinthians 1.30, and we can be strengthened by the immeasurable grace that is only found in him. Be strengthened, church family, by the grace that is in Jesus, 2 Timothy 2.1. Quickly, how, we should, how should we respond? Four quick things. If you're here today and you're suffering, or you're observing suffering very close to you, I want to ask you, don't leave today without asking someone to pray for you. Ask someone. Come find us during a song. Look, look to your right and left, people sitting around you. Ask someone to pray for you. The Lord uses his people to strengthen each other. If you're here and you're suffering today, you're in the best place in the world around people who love you and care about you and who will pray for you. Number two, flee from self-righteousness. Flee from it. Flee from that and rampant wickedness. Three, commit to finding contentment in our Lord's sufficient word. Resist the lie that, did God really say? Commit to finding contentment in the Lord's sufficient word. And lastly, cling to Christ. Cling to Christ for all your righteousness and for all your security. Cling to him today. If you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus, or here you have trusted in Jesus and it's your temptation, cling to him today. Let me pray for us as the musicians come. Father, we ask for your help today. We ask for your help today to humble us, that your word so regularly humbles us, the realization of who we are in light of who you are. Change our thoughts. Change the way we think about ourselves. Change our self-righteous tendencies. For us to understand who we really are and how much we really need from you. We need everything from you. You give us all things and I just pray, Father, that you would humble us, but you would also simultaneously strengthen us today by the grace that we know now that is in your son, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.